Our scripture reading this morning is from Psalm 125. Hear the word of the Lord. Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved, but abides forever. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people from this time forth and forevermore. For the scepter of wickedness shall not rest on the land allotted to the righteous, lest the righteous stretch out their hands to do wrong. Do good, O Lord, to those who are good and to those who are upright in their hearts. But those who turn aside to their crooked ways, the Lord will lead away with evildoers. Peace be upon Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Thank you, Gigi. Oh, there we go. We're getting all, we, we, we've been working with the sound, and so we're still getting all those things straight. So forgive us for um, some of the clunkiness with that. So good morning. My name is Drew Bennett. I'm one of the pastors here at Redeemer, Redeemer City Church. It's so good to see you this morning. Uh, just before we come to the scriptures, let me say a couple of things. Uh, first is, if you would be praying for my friend, uh, my dear, dear friend Lyle Caswell, he learned about 4.30 this morning that his father passed away, and uh, he's having to get up to preach in just a few minutes, and so you can imagine that would be a really hard thing emotionally. So if you would just maybe, un under your breath, pray for Lyle at Christ Community Church in Lakeland as he leads his church and then has to go and, and bury his father in the next few days, which can be obviously a... A really hard thing. Secondly, if you looked around, uh, particularly next service probably, but in this service as well, if you looked around and thought, gosh, there's a lot of people here I don't know, that's because this morning is uh, the first morning that our congregation in the southwest part of the city is back worshiping here with us. Uh, and so welcome to all of you who are part of Redeemer Southwest. Uh, we, are, we are proud of you and the work that you've done over the last number of years. We are selfishly excited to have you here with us again. Uh, we're prayerful that this would be a place that you would really feel at home. We really do hope that we're, we're prayerful that this is, becomes a home for you. And lastly, we're hopeful uh, that the story God is writing for our city, particularly in that part of the city, is not done. And so we look forward to what might come next there. We have no idea what that might be, but we know uh, that God is a good and faithful God, amen? And so we're trusting in him for those things. But we just wanted to say, acknowledge that. Uh, welcome, we're so glad uh, that you guys are here with us. Uh, and that's gonna be a lot of fun. We're gonna have a lot of fun together, okay? We continue in a series uh, we've been doing through what we call the Psalms of Ascent. And really, we're skipping ahead a little bit. Last week we did Psalm 122. We've gone all the way to Psalm 125. Uh, really, Psalm 123, 24, and 25 uh, are really one unit in many ways thematically, and so we're going, to, we're going to be kind of summarizing those other two. But if you have a Bible and so that you can get back and forth between those psalms, that would probably be helpful for you this morning. So as we come to this text, here's the question that I would like to ask you to be considering as we talk about these things this morning. If you think about your life, uh, is it more like a thermostat or more like a thermometer? Okay, as you think about your life, is it more thermostat or more thermometer? Because of course the setting on a thermostat determines the temperature of the room. You put it on 72 degrees and it brings the surroundings up to that temperature. So a thermometer reflects the temperature of the room. So the one determines the temperature, the other reflects the temperature. Which are you? Are you the kind of person who the inward 
repose and joyfulness that you live with creates an atmosphere of calm and joy for others just by your mere presence there. The external reality of your life conforms to the powerful inward settings that you live with. Or are you a person who absorbs what's going on around you so that your internal reality conforms to whatever external conditions you encounter? Those are really two different kinds of people. I've used the story of Jesus on the boat with his disciples in the storm before. The storm comes up on the sea, if you remember that story, and the disciples get stormy on the inside. They're full of anxiety. They wake up Jesus with their accusations. You heard that right. They woke him up because, of course, he had been asleep. And out of the inner calm, the inner serenity that allowed him to, to that point, be asleep in the storm, he stood. And, of course, if you're familiar with it, you know that he spoke out of the peace inwardly and the sea became calm. And so the disciples' inner life reflected their external reality. Jesus' internal life determined his external reality. And Christianity makes it possible for you and I to be more like Jesus than the disciples in that story, which is a wonderful thing because we live in a fallen world, which is just another way of saying that sometimes, or excuse me, it's just the way of saying that something is always going wrong. Can I get an amen? (laughs) Something is always going wrong. And so if your internal life is a reflection of your external circumstances, do you see how that could be a really big problem? You'll be like a ship in a hurricane, up and down, up and down as the waves roll in until you take on so much water you eventually sink. But there is another way. It is possible to live with such inner confidence and peace, the stuff that comes from the inside, from the inside out, that it begins to actually affect and change everything around you. That's what these three psalms are about, but particularly this Psalm 125, which is our main focus. And I want you to look all the way down at the end of verse 6 where... The psalmist sums up everything he's been saying with just the simple phrase, peace be upon Israel, he says. Now that's the word shalom. It means flourishing or soundness, something that's put together appropriately. And it's a prayer there. So we should read that like this, may shalom be upon you. Now notice he doesn't say not shalom to you. He says shalom upon you. In other words, in you and then from you or through you. That's the idea here. So look again up in the very first verse there at the imagery that dominates this psalm. He says, those who trust in the Lord have shalom. They are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved, but abides forever. Isn't it a great picture? It's a picture of a person who's constant, like a mountain, steadfast, unshakable, enduring, like a mountain that can't be moved. Notice the word abide there, who abides forever. It refers to a settlement, or if you prefer, an abode. Now remember, these psalms were sung by the Israelites on the way to the feasts in Jerusalem as a reminder that they are sojourners, that we are sojourners. We're passing through this world on the way home. This is what we've been saying And so we read in Hebrews chapter 13, here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. And so it goes on there in Hebrews to to describe those who live by faith. Listen to the way those, the archetypal believers live their lives. He says, they went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, 
afflicted, mistreated, wandering about in deserts and in dens and in caves. And some of us would say, amen, that's exactly the way my life feels. And yet, what this image here in verse 1 tells us is that it is possible to be at home, to have an abode, to be at home while you have no home. To be inwardly settled without settling down. To be at peace and to be bringing peace into this otherwise chaotic world. That's what this psalm is about. And it's something I think many of us need. And so I'm excited this morning that we can look here and see three things uh, that will be helpful to us, I think. The first is we see where the peace that is being described here and that's being prayed for here for these people and for us, where it comes from. It comes from trusting the Lord. Secondly, we're also shown in verse 3 what happens if you don't have it. What, what recourse you're left with if you're, if you're living without this peace that can make you like Mount Zion. And then thirdly, ultimately in verses 5 and 6, we see how it is that you can connect with God so that you get the peace that passes understanding inside of you and become a peacemaker. Okay, So peace, where it comes from, what happens if you don't have it, and how you can get it. Let's, let's walk through the psalm together, beginning just with that first question. Where does... Where does the peace that the psalmist is praying for, for them and for us in verse 6, come from? Now, look again at verse 1. Let's read it again. It says, Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved but abides forever. So, it is those who trust in the Lord who have peace. And they, it says, become immovable, like, like the mountain. Now, turn that around. What is the opposite? If you're full of anxiety... If you're always being tossed around emotionally, if you're unmountain-like, it is because you're trusting in something else, something that cannot save. And somewhere deep down inside, you know it, you've experienced it, and that's where the anxiety comes from. And so the question that really should be rolling around in our hearts as we look at these things together this morning is, what is the thing in my life that I'm functionally relying on? And trusting in. What is it that makes me feel safe at the end of the day? Now the prophet Jeremiah vividly describes the difference in the words that Jeff read to us earlier in the service. He describes this contrast between the person who trusts in God and the one who trusts in the things of this world. So if you want to look back in your worship folder at that law passage, it says this, cursed is the man who trusts in man. He's like a shrub in the desert and shall see not see any good come, he shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness. And then the contrast comes, but blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes and is not anxious in the year of drought for it does not cease to bear fruit. Now we're mixing metaphors here a bit, which is always dangerous, but the point holds. If you trust in the Lord, you will become like an immovable mountain, like a tree planted by a river that develops a root system that goes down into the earth and can get all the water it needs, even in times of drought. In other words, trusting in God can make you a person who has the internal frame and repose to weather any kind of external threat. But, if you trust in anything other than God, you'll be like a shrub in the desert. And that's an image of emotional sparseness, anxiety, fragility, lack of depth. 
And so if you feel shrub-like, you got some work you can do. You can take a really hard, honest look at your life and say, is it because my water source is drying up? Which means you ask the question, what am I trying to draw life from other than the Lord? Now, I really love the Jeremiah passage also because it clearly explains what trust is. So it contrasts those who trust in the things of man versus those who trust in the Lord. Now listen again and pay attention to the parallelism in the poetry because that's how the point is made. So verse 5, cursed is the man who trusts in man, second line, and makes flesh his strength, third line, whose heart turns away from the Lord. So when you're trusting in something, first line, you're relying upon it to be your strength, second line. It's the thing that you look to to get things done. It's the thing that you're hoping will make life go. And then third line, you turn your heart toward it. In other words, it eventually, it inevitably becomes an object of love and devotion. You begin to depend upon it emotionally for your well-being and your own soundness. Now, we could turn the verb into a noun. Your trust is the thing that makes you feel okay and secure. The thing that you can't do life without. The thing that has the most direct influence over how you think and feel and make decisions. Now, this is the way that we're to be toward God. That's the point. To rely upon his power and love for everything. To give him and him alone and him above all things, our loyalty and love in return, and to take our hands off of our life and to put it into his hands, because only he is worthy. Only God can save. And that's the way to peace. So listen to the way David talks about the Lord in the other passage we read. He says, the Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my shield, my stronghold, my refuge, my savior. I mean, all it's just amazing language there. David is supremely confident in God. Nothing can get to him. He knows enough about God to know he's safe. And David is full of great thoughts of God and who he is. And so we learn a very important lesson that sin is not just doing bad things. We do bad things because somewhere along the way, we've made something other than God our trust. And we've started to look to something else for salvation besides the God who is enthroned in heaven, Psalm 123, verse 1. And then if you look back at that psalm, there's all this language there of the servant in Psalm 123 looking to the hand of his master and so forth. What we, what we learn there is we can look to other people and we can say, it's your love that will save me. Parents can look to the child in the family and say, it's your love for me as your parent that will save me. Or we can look at the bank statement each month and we can say, oh, it's your power that makes me feel safe. But here's what that's like. Uh, have you seen the guy, whoever's doing ads at Geico needs a big raise because they're the best. But if you've seen the Geico ad where there's the group of teenagers, they're running from the serial killer like in the old, like in the old horror movies, you know, and, uh, and they're trying to find a place to hide and they can't figure out where to go and they're crying and desperate and the one girl says, why don't we just get into the running car? And there the car is right there and the response comes, are you crazy? Let's hide behind the chainsaws. And then it cuts to the garage with like a hundred chainsaws and axes and knives and they hide there and the serial killer comes up behind them and is just like these people are dumb 
But that is a picture of what trusting in anything other than God is like. And trusting, it's, it's a suicidal exchange. Trusting in things that cannot save is crazy. Not so the righteous. They are like Mount Zion. Because their eyes, Psalm 123, look to the Lord enthroned in the heavens. Listen, a million dollars in the bank is great, but it cannot save you from cancer. A loving family is one of life's greatest blessings, but it cannot save you and keep you safe from crushing heartbreak. But God is greater than all. He is greater than every enemy, every heartbreak, every failure, every sickness, even death is no match for him. And so Eugene Peterson writes this. He says, living as a Christian is not walking a tightrope without a safety net above a breathless crowd, many of whom would like nothing better than the morbid thrill of seeing you fall. Being a Christian, living as a Christian, is like sitting secure in a fortress. And so we look at verse 2, and it says, As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people from this time forth and forevermore. And that's just beautiful. It's just a beautiful imagery. Jerusalem sits in the middle of a saucer of mountains that surround the city and provide a natural fortification. But let's get real. This is Florida. We call Bach Tower a mountain. Okay? <laughs> I mean, it's not exactly a daunting climb. So let's change the metaphor here to a force field because that probably, and that's a pop culture reference in all the movies we watch, which make more sense to most of us. So in Star Wars, for example, before you can destroy the Death Star, what do you have to do? You have to take down the, force, the shield down. You have to take down the force field, right? Because if you don't, nothing's getting through. Shoot all the missiles you want to at that thing. It won't make any difference until the force field comes down and they can get through. Here's what we're being told here. God so surrounds his people that nothing can get through that does not have to first pass through him. Which means that whatever ends up in your life, whatever trouble you end up having to face, it had to first get past the force field of God's infinite mercy and justice and love and goodness. Isn't that great news? So the key then is to think great thoughts of God and let those thoughts be the lens through which you look at everything else. That's trust. The opposite is unbelief. In unbelief, you view God through the lens of your circumstances. Your experience, your emotional, you know, your emotions determine the reality of God rather than God and who he is and the promises that he make to you, makes to you determining the reality of what you're going through and what you're feeling. The sin underneath all sin is unbelief. That's where our repentance has to begin this morning because this, verses 1 and 2, does not mean that we will not encounter hard things. The opposite is true. The backdrop for all three of these psalms, Psalm 123, 124, and 125, is intense struggle and hardship. Now, two things in particular that I want to mention to show what happens when we're living from places of inner anxiety and insecurity because our trust is not properly fixed on the Lord, <clears throat> excuse me, we're going to focus on the phrase in verse 3 because it's the key. If you look there, he talks about the righteous not stretching out their hand. Now, the hand in the Bible is the metaphor for power and strength. So 
This refers to trying to get things done in your own strength. If trusting God is taking your hands off your life and putting putting it in God's hands instead, this is the opposite. This is out of interfering anxiety and a sense of control, trying to put your hands on your life, thinking that if you could just get your hands on whatever's going wrong, then you can turn it around and fix it. And this is how we do life when we're not living with God's peace upon us. And I'm going to I'm going to let you in on a little secret. It's never the solution. In fact, it's almost always part of the problem. At least that's what this scripture and others say. Now, the first issue, a couple of just very uh, specific applications here. And the first is, the first issue brought up in in these Psalms is relational conflict. Uh, In Psalm 123 and 124, this is where it would be helpful maybe, maybe for you to look back. Presumably David here is dealing with the way he's been sinned against by other people. And so in Psalm 124, he describes people rising up against him full of contempt and accusations, saying awful things about him. And I love, I love his honesty. He says it's like a flood that threatens to sweep him away. He's drowning. He can't breathe because his friends are turning on him and saying awful things about him. And that's exactly what it feels like when somebody's coming at you like that, isn't it? And what is the most natural way to react? Stretch out your hand. Sometimes ball up your fist and stretch out your hand. And fight back. If not physically, then with words. And if not with words, then with wrong anger on the inside. And here's the problem with all of that. On the one hand, Tim Strawbridge, who's our friend in Lakeland, who has a way of saying things, he likes to say that vengeance is an incommunicable attribute of God. That is, it is something that God does that we're not allowed to do. Because, the second thing is, verse 3, look there, when we do, most often, all we end up accomplishing in our stretching out our hand uh, to take, and I I didn't even think of this, remember uh, the story of Uzzah in the Old Testament when they're carrying the ark of the Lord and the ark begins to topple, and what does he do? Stretches out his hand, to try to help God. And guess what happens to him? Drops dead. That's exactly the reaction that you should have to that passage. And so when we stretch out our hand like this, most often all we do is add to the problem. We make it worse. And so in this relational conflict stuff, the Apostle Paul warns of repaying evil with more evil, of being overtaken by the evil being done to you and perpetuating it in your own response. Instead, he says, this is Romans 12, live at peace by loving, in other words, out of inner peace, begin to make peace, loving those who wish you evil. Don't avenge yourself. Pray for your enemies. He goes on to say, wish well for those who wish evil for you. Don't avenge yourself. Leave it to God. What's he saying? Take your hands off the situation. Put it in God's hands. Leave it to him who says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. So instead of being overcome by the evil others are doing to you, overcome it with good. This is how you do it. But that takes a mountain-like person to do that, doesn't it? To be so God-confident that they are able to absorb what's coming at them and take their hands off the situation and put it in God's hands and then go about the work of doing as much good as possible even to the most horrible people. Now ponder the question, where are you relationally most tempted to put your hands on your life? 
or on your relationships? What would it look like for you to trust God instead? And then to get out of the way and let him work, because that's what the psalm's calling you to. But then there's, the, there's that the one thing. But then there's another thing, what I would call, and I didn't really know what to give this, what wording to give this, but I would call it organizational oppression. Uh, this is when there's a system that is corrupt, that you're facing, that you're having to endure. What the psalmist refers to in verse 3 as the scepter of wickedness. Do you see that language there? Scepter being an image of power. So systems of power that use their control to oppress and to persecute. So government or just the HOA. <laughs> I knew that would get a chuckle. You should be in my neighborhood right now. Ooh, what's going on? Or a boss at work who hates, hates you for no reason and makes your life a living hell. Or, if I could just be completely honest, sometimes pastors who are overly authoritarian and spiritually abuse those under their spiritual care. I mean, anytime there's some corrupt power and you feel weak against it, what do you do? I particularly love what the psalm says here because it's actually couched in a promise. Look there, it says, God is behind the scenes working to ensure... Verse 3, that the scepter of wickedness shall not rest on the land allotted to the righteous. That doesn't mean that you won't face corrupt leadership like this, but that when you do, it can't beat God. No corrupt, you know, organizational leader that you're up against can thwart the purposes God intends for you. Sometimes he uses them as an instrument in those ways. You can be 100% sure of that, that God may not remove this hardship in your life, but, but, but he will overcome it. And so the psalmist warns us to know this. He, he wants us to see this is true. Why? He says, Less, what, because what is our natural response? Look what it says. Lest the righteous stretch out their hands, but it doesn't end there. What does it say? To do wrong. Again, the most natural way is to put your hands on the problem. To put your fingers on the keyboard and rail against the wrong to whoever will listen. But because we're sinful, we tend to respond sinfully to being sinned against. Far better to trust God to be at work. Which is what you've seen in the history of Christianity. Maybe the best example that I can think of is Martin Luther King and those that followed him facing the, political, the powerful political oppression of black Americans 50, 60 years ago in our country. Uh, when he wrote this, listen, this is just something entirely different. The man who could write this, we shall match your capacity to inflict suffering by our capacity to endure it. Throw us in jail and we will love you. Bomb our homes and threaten our children and we will still love you. Send your hooded perpetrators of violence in our, into our community at midnight and beat us and leave us half dead and we shall still love you, but be assured we will wear you down. And they did. How? By retaliating? No, just the opposite. He says, be assured, we will wear you down by our capacity to suffer, which is to say, our capacity to trust the Lord. Dr. King and his followers, they're like Mount Zion. Now, why this matters so much to me, uh, this last year has really been a, part, a time of, of taking my hands off of my life and trusting God in many ways. We sent our first kid to a college, and that's a scary thing, isn't it? It's a forced hands-off for parents. And when you're very hands-on parents, that's just scares you to death. Uh, but I can report my son is doing really great. He's really taken off, which is such a relief. 
Uh, it's so great and it's so humbling because it feels like he began to really take off as soon as I took my hands off of him. So there's less of me, less of my advice, less of my presence, less of my action, less of my parenting, and it's obvious that has been a good thing for him, which is just incredibly humbling. And then, then there's here at the church. I've taken my hands off. I planted this church 11 years ago and, and have been really front and center in a lot of things, but in the last year I've taken my hands off a lot of stuff, and every place that I've taken my hands off stuff here it seems to go better than when I was in charge. You should laugh at that. That's funny. That's some funny stuff, guys. I mean, that's some really, really funny stuff because it's true of your life, too. I'm just the one that's living it out in front of you, okay? And so I've, had to, I've been forced to come to the conclusion that maybe my tight grip on my life was part of the problem and not the solution. And so, if peace comes from trusting God, which means taking our hands off our lives, then how do you start trusting that's the last thing. Or let's say it this way, what makes God trustworthy? Listen to Psalm 124, verse 8. Our help is in the name of the Lord. Proverbs 18.10 uh, is a, a, a verse that many of us probably have committed to memory. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run into it and they are safe. So the, the strong place, the refuge, the castle where we're safe is the name of the Lord. God's name is what makes him trustworthy, and his name is his character. And so it's knowing what God is like that can make you like Mount Zion. You have to know his name. You have to know him by name. You have to know him intimately from personal experience. And so let's focus in just the few minutes we have left on verses 4 and 5. And what you see in those verses is you see a movement upward towards God. So in, in Psalm 125, this is the way it works. The problem of verse 3 becomes the prayer of verses 4 and 5. So the solution is the Lord. Specifically, that, both, that God is both good and great. So look at those two verses. There is in verse 4 the hope that God is good. And then there is in verse 5 the hope that God is just. So we read, do good, O Lord, to those who are good and to those who are upright in their hearts. It's a promise that God is just that, that he is good. Now there's, theological, there's a theological knot to untie. Don't worry about that just yet. Uh, in Psalm 1830, David sings, all God's ways are good. His goodness is a shield for those who take refuge in him. So it's God's goodness. It's God's being full of mercy and grace to us that is the force field that protects our lives. Then it goes on in verse 5. But those who turn aside to their crooked ways, the Lord will lead away with evildoers. So this is a promise that God is in fact just. And there will come a day of justice where he will punish evil. That he won't just let evil off the hook. And these two things... Together, ultimately, are what make God trustworthy. Because think with me for just a minute. If God was not great, then you shouldn't put your life in his hands. I mean, what good would that do? What good would it be if there was something greater than him? If he could be defeated, if just any enemy could pass right through his protective force field of your life, then there's no need bothering with him at all. He can't help you, he can't help you against the real hard things, but, but he is great. That's what it says. But the second, if God were great, but not also good, then you definitely don't want your life in his hands. How could you trust someone like that who had unlimited authority and unlimited power, but no kindness and no love? That's no good. But God is great. And he's also good. And that's why, that's why you can trust him. 
And this is why C.S. Lewis's description of Aslan the lion is so brilliant and so enduring when the children learn that he is a, a lion. Lucy asks Mr. Beaver, is he safe? And of course, the famous line, Mr. Beaver says, safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he's not safe, but he's good. God is infinitely loving and good, infinitely patient and forgiving, and he is infinitely powerful and holy and full of wrath against his enemies. He is not safe, but he is good. But you would say to me, how can I know for sure? <laughs> how can I know for sure? And if you want to know with 100% certainty what God is like, the answer is always look to Jesus. Because Jesus was God in human flesh, he, and he was good. I mean, think of all of the times that he had compassion on those who were hurting and healed the sick and got up early and stayed up late to take care of people's needs. He was a forgiving friend, a tender shepherd, but he wasn't safe. How many times did people end up on their faces in the dirt in front of him? How often did the Jews conspire against him only to have, them slip, have him slip through their fingers? Now, if you're still not convinced, don't just think about Jesus' person. Think about his cross. The cross in Christian theology is the ultimate display of God's greatness. It is the blow of God's justice against sin, but not coming down upon us, but coming down upon a substitute in our place. The Lamb of God who himself was the picture of God's goodness and love. And so the cross makes it possible for God to be both just and good. He can be both just and the justifier, not just of the just, but of all of those who have faith in Jesus, Paul says in Romans chapter 3. In other words, he can punish sin and also be good because it was a substitute that stood there in our place. And so his goodness doesn't just go to those who are good, but to the good and the evil alike. Are you having trouble? Trusting God, not just putting your hands on your life. Look to Jesus' person. Look to his cross. Take your hands off your life. Put them in his hands. They're strong hands. They're pierced hands. And when these truths begin to really settle into your heart, they settle you. You, more and more, can become like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved but abides forever. And so the key to living with the peace of God is to know peace with God through Jesus Christ who reconciled us to God making peace by the blood of his cross. And then what you do is then you work on your heart with the truth that is there the way the hymn writer does in this old hymn. Listen to this hymn. I love this. The way he says a line and then reasons out the truth of it in the next line. He says, peace, perfect peace in this dark world of sin. Yes, the blood of Jesus whispers peace within Peace, perfect peace with sorrows surging round? Yes, because on Jesus' bosom naught but calm is found. Peace, perfect peace, our future all unknown? Yes, because Jesus we know, and he is on his throne. Amen? Pray with me, would you? So, Father, would you... So settle our hearts with the wonderful truth of who you are, of your great love for us, shown to us in the Lord Jesus and his life and death and resurrection on our behalf, that it would be, it would come into us to fortify us from the inside out, to make us uh, like Mount Zion, knowing that we are surrounded by your love. We are hemmed in on every side by your care and your support and your mercy and your grace and your power toward us. 
working all things together for our good. That's our life is insulated from every evil that could really undo us. And so we would say with those so often in the scriptures, if God is for us, who can be against, the, against us? If God is for us, what can man do to me? And yet it's the first part there. It's still the lingering doubts that it's the hardest thing in the world for us to believe that you love us and that you're for us. And yet we commit our greatest sin against you by failing to believe with such a mountain of evidence in front of us. The Lord Jesus himself, your great gift out of the generous heart you have for the world. The cross of his suffering, which is one time the greatest incidence of your justice, but also the greatest expression of your love. And so come and fasten our eyes upon you, even as we sing now at the very end of our, of our service. Draw us to yourself. If for some, maybe for the first time, that we would take our hands off our lives and put them in your hands because we would take our eyes off of things around us or off of our own strength and we would look up for the first time for the help that comes only from the Lord and faith and repentance, I pray, that would be true of some this morning and that as a result we would sing with newfound faith or just with reinvigorated faith of your great love and your great power to save. Help us encourage one another as we sing now and we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen, isn't that great? So here's what that means. That means that we can be sent now by the God who's called us here to meet with him, to go full of courage and faith, not fear, to go like Mount Zion. Amen. I mean, with this internal resources of, of joy and hope and peace, uh, to bring hope and peace uh, to a world that so desperately needs it. So receive this benediction again as the promise that as you go, Jesus says, go into all the world, but no. Uh, that I will be with you until the end of the age. That's what these words mean. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. God bless you. Go in his peace.